to episode 241 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 31st of July, 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. RISC-5 64 is now an official Debian architecture, so this is not the current release, but for the next release, Trixie, 64-bit RISC-5 is going to be an officially supported architecture. This is good news. Yeah, I think it is good news. Now, Trixie's still about two years away, so they've got a decent amount of time because at the moment the packages that are built for risk five are a little bit lacking but they're getting on with it and this feels to me like the beginning of the next important thing in desktop computing like we could be running machines laptops or even even if it is just single board computers running on risk five this feels like the sort of epoch for risk five becoming a popular architecture for home users well and potentially servers as well because Debian does run quite a lot of servers out there. Yeah, absolutely for servers, but they, they you know, they that's going to happen anyway in my opinion. Like it will just happen, somebody will take care of that. But for for the people who are buying Raspberry Pis to run their their stuff on at home, I think that this represents the next evolution for those people of hopefully cheaper and more standardized single board computers. Well, that very much remains to be seen and I'm quite skeptical about that. But nevertheless, a competing architecture is always good. And even if it just forces ARM to innovate more, then that's a good thing. Even if it doesn't turn out to be as open as we hoped. But it's interesting that they're relying on nine High 5 unmatched boards to build the archive. And there's not a lot of the archive built for RISC-V just yet. Because they're not that powerful, those boards. Not that powerful and quite expensive. Mm which is a, a, an interesting uh, juxtaposition for my belief that this is the beginning of the next round <laughs> of cheap computers. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's just not that many out there. Once Debian runs on it, of course, then everybody will have one. Well, haven't you ordered one or something? Yeah, I have. It's it's not of that this sort of order, right? It's, it's a tiny, effectively, a, an Arduino replacement. But yeah, I have ordered one. It was uh, a very good deal. I think it was six quid. It's not here yet, but it'll be here in the next couple of weeks. Whether or not I find a use for it before Christmas and therefore gift you a point (laughs) remains to be seen. But I'm not going to sit on my hands. When this thing arrives, I will go looking for a a use case for it. I'll report back when it arrives. What's that point worth? (laughs) (laughs) I can feel that point in the bag. Will you take counter usage points? (laughs) Phelim, you put this in. It's a post from Calabra, the next step for NVK merging into Mesa. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't have an NVIDIA card, but I don't also like the way that uh, if you do happen to have one or got one in as part of a system that you're stuck with the binary driver, realistically speaking. The Nouveau driver is pretty good, and I used it myself when I had an NVIDIA card, but you're definitely not going to get gaming performance out of it, but it is really good to see Calabra have been involved in this. And, yeah, okay, it's maybe not full speed gaming available yet but if it's heading in that direction i think that's important because it'd be really nice that both the amd level cards and the nvidia cards are and i guess the intel arc stuff is all going to have a free driver even if there is blobs whatever at least you can get a reliable system yeah they explained that nvk is the open source vulcan driver for nvidia hardware in mesa and this came out of nvidia open sourcing their driver somewhat must have been about a year ago so it seems like progress is being made. And like you say, it's got to be better than Nouveau for 
3D stuff. I mean, it's funny, people always knock Nuvo, but for day-to-day stuff... Oh, absolutely, If you're yeah. not playing games, it's absolutely fine. Yeah, but I mean, why are you buying a, an NVIDIA graphics card for day-to-day stuff? That seems like your mm. spreadsheets can only go so quick. Yeah, but if you've got an old desktop PC that happens to have a shit NVIDIA card in it, then Nuvo is fine. Yeah, and I don't think this will fix it, will it? No. Quite, because this actually only targets the Turing chipset, which is the 2600 onwards. They have said that they want to support the 6 and 700s and up, but they're not there yet. So you still need a relatively recent graphics card to make this work. Let's do some discoveries then. Graham, Tio, is this someone's uncle? Okay, I accept this is niche. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We're not used to that from you. I do have a need quite often for a serial terminal transfer utility or a serial utility, very much like what was the find that Will had a little while ago for accessing BBSs? Was it Codem or? Qmodem, yeah, or Quodem. Yeah, and Linux doesn't have a great solution for this. There's Minicom, which I think is what most people use. If you need to access the serial port or a serial device and you need to send commands to it and you need to set the board rate and all that kind of stuff, Minicom's the best that we have. It's been around for a long time. But Minicom doesn't do things on its own like raw transfers. And you can't automate it very easily. So I do have a couple of... In fact, it's quite common. Lots of Arduino devices communicate like this over their own kind of USB serial buses, which is handled by the IDE. But some things don't, and you need to interact with them manually, or you might want to automate things and transfer files to them, such as really old synthesizers. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, There we go. Right, that's right. This suddenly makes sense. Okay. But this isn't for synth specifically. TO is like Minicom, but it's really modern terminal I don't know what you'd call it, a terminal client that you can automate and it automatically detects the serial devices for you. It's got really good wildcard globbing so you don't have to remember or even detect the name of the USB device, for example, if you just plug one in. It works really well to fill in the missing gaps that Minicom has, such as binary file transfers. So you can have Minicom up and then... You can use TO to transfer a file to the device by you actually cat the file into TO and then TO will handle everything else by connecting to the device and sending sending the binary to whatever you happen to be sending it to. And I found it really pleasant to use. After struggling with kind of terminal emulators, I don't want to call them for a long time, you always have to struggle with the, the board rate, the serial port rate, the um, the error correction, all that kind of stuff, and you get it wrong and you forget about it. TO just does that. You don't even have to think about it. It'll connect automatically with a set of defaults that work. You can view dumps directly in hexadecimal. It looks good. It's really quick. And you don't have to have interactive mode. You can use it to just summon commands and send things to a serial port. So you can kind of automate the process of uploading files to, like an Arduino. Um, This is something you commonly use for Arduino. If the Arduino is running some kind of firmware that's expecting binary firmware updates, for example. It's the best I've found because there's very little like this outside of Minicom, which is old itself. You thought that was niche. Get ready for your next one. (laughs) HP 45 calculator emulator. (laughs) Doesn't everyone have a thing for old HP calculators (laughs) from like the 70s and the 80s being emulated? I think it's quite a big thing, but um, 
the, the HP 45, this, this emulator, I don't know if it's really an emulator, because it runs, I think, the, the original ROM from this calculator. But what I really like about this, I think the emulator is called HP 1973, is that not only does it provide all the functionality and the input for the calculator, and it's just a normal scientific calculator like you used to get in the 70s and 80s that used to cost everything, but it's got this really nice kind of IDE introspection panel layout. Um, so you can see the stack. Is that what that coloured bar stuff is? Is that the memory? Yeah, yeah. You can oh, see the wow. stack and oh you can see the God. registers <laughs> and you can see the ROM registers. So if you do have an interest, it's a bit like looking on the inside of an 8-bit computer while you're doing simple calculations. It even has the disassembly. And it's a Python thing. You can just download. There isn't a Linux build, but you just download the project and you just Python run the main thing, and it runs. And it's got a oh. nice UI. It looks great, and it's a lot of fun if you care at all about old calculators. That is pretty cool. Yeah, in a sort of a way. I mean, I, I feel begrudging to give it to you, but yeah, it's actually quite good. The first calculator my dad gave me because it was his previously didn't even have an lcd on it It had like these tiny weird bulbs on it i don't know what the hell they were and you had to use reverse polish notation to type into it bizarrely enough i was talking about this only yesterday which is really weird you used to have to put like number the first number in the second number and then what you wanted to do to them which obviously as a kid was like i am not going into school with this (laughs) make it go away (laughs) but i wish i'd kept it now i'll tell you that much yeah it'd be worth a fortune these days i probably well Two great niche discoveries from Graham there. <laughs> Freedom. Linux Air Combat, a new Steam Deck install. What's all this? So I'd seen this before, and it's not meant to be like a flight sim flight sim. I mean, it's still decent, but it's more arcade flight sim. Like, think, uh, what was that one that used to be in the thing in the 80s in the in the big risk-powered machines that was like a Top Gun kind of thing. Afterburner? Afterburner, yeah. The one that had the, like the special built hardware for it and all that. It's more on that style of thing. Now, the graphics are simple, but I think still high-res and nice. Kind of like what you hoped those games were on the outside of a cartridge back in the day when you got it on a Commodore <laughs> 64, and then it turned into like ASCII art crap. Well, this is a game like that. It's got full built-in networking tutorials all the way through it it's voiced over by some of the devs which is kind of fun and kind of weird but yeah it's nice and it's got cool features like uh you can do some of the tutorials and what they do is they record some of the previous users that have passed the tutorial and they have them as replay blokes as they call them Mm. (laughs) which means that you can have like an ai character but that is actually a previous human that was doing it and you can interact with them in a sort of way got full joystick support and it goes up to like proper resolutions as well like i had a full screen 1920 by 1080 and yeah it's just good fun and as they say the real beauty of it is when you get online and play on the network and what it does is when you start up it actually will fire up mumble if you have that previously installed and then you can do voice chat with people that are in the games do you have to say over when you finish talking (laughs) maybe (laughs) maybe you do if you're real and this is free and open source as well Oh, yeah, fully, yeah. It comes as an app image, but there's also a Steam install for the Steam Deck that you can do. You can get the source code, everything, yeah. It's it's totally fully open thing, and it's a bit of a laugh. It doesn't quite have that same 
polished aesthetic that Microsoft's one has, though, does it? <laughs> to be quite honest, I think it's better because this is more meant to be fun. Whereas, you know, if you're playing one that's meant to be real, then yeah, use Flight Gear, obviously, not Microsoft, please. <laughs> it's different. It's meant to be more the, the gameplay rather than the sort of making sure you've started the engine in the correct manner, etc., and things like that. The videos that they've got on the website do make it look very smooth, though. Like, everything, yes, okay, it's a bit basic and a bit plain, but the scenery goes past incredibly smoothly, and it gives this kind of fluid feeling to the whole game, which looks really quite appealing. Yeah, and I have a joystick. It's not a fancy one. I don't know what price it was, but it's a Thrustmaster joystick, and I've got a, like, a the stick on it rotates so you have like the rudder pedal system and you've got the the proper throttle thing and that's all tied in so you've kind of got the joy of a very simple game but it integrates all of, like the proper joysticks and stuff and you actually get real good fun out of it well it's no afterburner is it though <laughs> with the uh the sit-in arcade that was i think mm. when i was a kid it was like two quid for a go which was well. like a thousand pounds now I don't know. It depends how good your plywood skills are. <laughs> but the whole thing would like move around. It was yeah. oh, it was amazing. They had one in the Trocadero. Yeah, there was G-Lock. They did the whole 360 degree spin as well. That was amazing. But the graphics were crap. They used sprites. But it was about the playability though, like Lennox Air Combat. It's not about being super accurate graphics. It's about having fun. Yeah, Sega did get that right. It was uh, mm. yeah, they they were good at that. What was the one with the boy on the stalk that you shot things? Because that was very similar. Space Harrier. Yeah, that's mm. it. With those weird, like, almost like Stranger Things style opening up eye things yeah. that you'd have to shoot. And that had a cabinet where you could, I saw one where you could sit on like a one end of a seesaw huh. and control the boy in the game that way. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Showing our age now. I know. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash late night Linux to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com support. And remember, for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. So I've discovered Passim or Parsim, not sure how you say that. This is from Richard Hughes, Hughesy. And... I can't say I fully understand what it is, but I thought it was worth a shout out because it uses MDNS to advertise files by their SHA-256 hash. And the idea of it is when you download an index file, let's say you do an AppGet update or a DNF update, you download loads of data that's pretty small, but times that by millions of users and that adds up very quickly. 
And it doesn't make sense that everyone in an organization, when they're checking for firmware updates or repository updates, should be going to the CDN and costing someone money. If you've got an office full of 100 people, why don't one or two people download it and then share it over the LAN? And Husey, from what I have seen of this, seems to have solved that problem. It's very early days and he's looking for input on it, but it seems like a very interesting idea that could save a lot of bandwidth and ultimately do some good for the world. You know, where somebody's really smart, which Husey obviously is, because he's an awful smarter than I am, but has he never heard of a web proxy? Like, what is the difference between this? I don't know, man. All I know is that he's a lot cleverer than I am, and I don't fully understand it. And he talks about IPFS as something you can compare it to, but he didn't talk about web proxies. I don't know, maybe he's looking at this as a developer, and you with your sysadmin hat on can probably solve this in a different way. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It just it feels like it is solved like a long time ago. But maybe there's something I'm not getting, which I will very, very happily hand that point over. Well, I've been following him on Mastodon for quite a while now, and he has long since complained about people or entities or bots or whatever it is hitting the LVFS servers and using a lot of bandwidth and compute. And so I yeah. think this is his solution to that. I mean, maybe it's just a thing people are not doing web proxies in offices anymore because they just think, well, bandwidth is cheap and then just mm. go for it. Like, But yeah, okay. Yeah, and so the details of it are still being ironed out and still subject to change by the sounds of things. But the basic idea of it is that you just download it once and then share it across the LAN using a combination of the file name and the SHA-256 sum. So it's not super secure, mm. but then do you need it to be, is the question. And he, he does raise the questions of security, and he's inviting comment on it. So I think if it sounds interesting, click through to his blog post about it, have a read of it, understand it way better than I did, and get involved in the conversation, because this could be something really cool, I think. Windows updates have done something similar to this for a while, whereas you've got a whole bunch of Windows 10 machines <laughs> on a they network. <laughs> they have indeed. Yeah, yeah, they claim to. I don't know where what? they're fucking doing it, but they're down a fucking well every time I fucking try to get <laughs> updates on my VM because it fucking takes forever. I can patch an entire fleet of servers within the space of time it thinks about fucking getting the list of updates on a Windows box. Well, I think also there was a patch for, or a, an add-on for apt to do something similar where it would ask local machines if they had the particular deb on them that, that could be downloaded locally. I can't remember what it was called, but it definitely exists. So yeah, I, it does feel like this might be a solved problem. I've been using app cacher ng for a couple of hosts inside a client network that just couldn't get out half the time because it was with weird routing going on, the two of them. So I said, one of the internal boxes just set up an app cacher ng and rather than have to set up an internal repo like you can do with some of them, app cachers handy in the fact that it just go, anything that goes through it looking for a deb, it then says, all right, I'll cache it for you mm, now. That's where you have yeah. to set up all that crap of, you know, mirroring stuff and then making sure you've got all the right packages and all that stuff. Yeah, it's just easier way of doing it. It works most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Will. Go read. Go read is a terminal-based RSS reader, and it's very nice to use. It supports a kind of tabbed interface, which you can navigate with the keyboard. 
the UI layout is very straightforward, very easy to navigate. It's got some decent levels of customization, so you can give particular things particular colors, for example. And interestingly, it's got an offline mode. So you can download articles or you can just flip it into offline mode and it will cache all of that stuff so you can read it in your terminal. And it feels pretty close to something like Feedly or Reader, but just in a terminal, which, of course, is therefore better. And it's just very straightforward, very small, easy to install via the Go Get, and you can install it straight from GitHub and just a decent little app. I don't really prefer it to Feedly yet, but I'm going to continue trying it and tweaking it. And there's one big gap in its feature set, in my opinion, which is that it doesn't support OPML files. And OPML files are kind of an XML format that Feedly lets you export all of your feeds into. So if you want to bring your feeds across from Feedly, you've got to add each one individually at the moment. That's a bit of a pain. But I've got a feature request open. The guy's pretty active in keeping this project up to date so who who knows it won't be long and also it's pretty easy i could probably write a script for example to convert opml to their own yaml format pretty easy i just can't be asked so yeah check it out if you're looking for a text-based rss reader definitely worth checking out if you're looking for this very niche and specific thing, are you a prepper? Because, I mean, like, it was BBSs last week. And if, if, if there isn't something to do with, like, serial console something or other, like, if the internet was below one kilobit a second, you're sorted. What, what do you expect? Is there a giant solar storm coming that you've predicted or something? Packet radio is the future. Watch this space. Oh, God. I got this license 20 years ago. I'm <laughs> going to make sure it's of good value. <laughs> so my big question about this, which is really make or break, is does it have a memory of where you got to? Because I, for some reason, have to read everything. Mm. And I don't want to just dip in and out. It's not like with mastodon or social media generally where you can just kind of dip in and out i am the kind of person who likes to read everything in my rss feeds so i make sure i haven't missed anything yes it does it gives you a little tick next to the ones you've already read right so you can mark them as read and yep. right good because i couldn't be doing without that right hmm when you said it didn't have a feature i thought it was going to be ascii art where it like converts <laughs> actual photographs and jpegs into like dithered at symbols and t's and lines well you say that oh uh, god I, I, i'm pretty sure it does do some of that but uh, i haven't got an example to hand but i was looking at the, the source code earlier and i think it might do something similar do you remember m player used to have like this ascii mode video yeah, yeah vlc has that as well i think oh does it okay yeah okay so so youtube's covered as well then brilliant yeah <laughs> So what about opening them in a browser then? I think get out of here, Joe. I think that's what it's... <laughs> or at least copying the link to put somewhere to save the link. Well, let's find out. <laughs> that's where the Vim buffers come in, don't you know? <laughs> yeah, so if there's a link in the document, it presents it as a hyperlink, and the terminal knows that it's a hyperlink. It's got all the metadata in there. And so you can just click on it, or you can right-click and copy link address, all of that normal stuff, and just open it in your browser. But I don't mean links within the articles. I mean links to the articles. Mm, I don't understand. Right. So let's say Pharonix, right? I'm subscribed to that RSS feed. Yeah. And then I'm reading through the feed and there's an article about Plasma and how they're removing loads of useful stuff. 
because they want to be like Gnome. Don't bring that up two weeks in a row, you cheeky bastards. (laughs) It's just because I've still got that tab open, sorry. But how do I copy the link to that article to put it into my doc? Oh, to the article, I see. Uh, I don't think you can. Right, this is dead to me then. That's a good call. But no, I, I don't think you can. I don't think it does that. Submit your patches. What's the point then? Why else would you read an RSS feed if not to save the links to talk about in a podcast? I, I don't know. Weird people out there might just read stuff and then get on with their day or something weird. No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe it. I tell you, Vim or Emacs integration is clearly in your future for this joke. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows what we're doing. Graham probably won't be here. He'll probably be off sunning himself or avoiding wildfires or something like that. <laughs> so we might have a guest. We'll see. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I really have been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.